When you come to practice meditation, tell yourself that you put all your baggage out at the door. You don't have to carry it in here. All your thoughts about what you've done today, what you're going to do tomorrow. Anything past or future. Tell yourself it's not relevant right now. What's relevant is what you're immediately sensing right here, right now. What is that? Well, there's the breath coming in and out. You can sense the body here. As for the other sense doors, we close them down. The eyes are closed. You can even close your ears. You don't have to listen to the Dharma talk. As I've said many times before, the Dharma talk is here as a fence. If you leave the breath, you run into the fence, which reminds you to go back to the breath. Don't let the talk interfere with your breathing. And allow the body to relax. And John Suat once noted that there's a paradox in what we're trying to develop here as we get the mind to settle down. On the one hand, they talk about the mind being soft and malleable. And on the other hand, it's talk, we say that the mind has to be strong. So strong in the sense that you're not going to let yourself get waylaid by other thoughts. You're going to focus on the breath, focus on the immediate sensation of the body right here, right now. Try to elaborate that as little as possible. Just direct sensation, the breath coming in, the breath going out. You feel it right here. And you feel the different sensations in the body to let you know, you know where your arms are, where your legs are, where your head is. And don't try to feel in anything more than what you actually sense. That's a good exercise right there. We have a lot of ideas that we bring into the present moment. Perceptions about the shape of the body, how we should be breathing, where we should be feeling the sensation of the breathing. And if you really look at what you've got right here, right now, you begin to see how much that is something that's brought in from the past. And if you let go of those pre preconceived notions, what have you got? That's an interesting thing to explore right there. And when you think about it, you find things softening up a little bit. A lot of the tension with which you hold the body in order to make it fit into your preconceived notion of what you should be feeling right now gets put aside. And as you allow yourself to become more and more sensitive to the feeling of breathing, a lot of the tension in the body can begin to relax. You're not here trying to prove anything or to force anything. You're here to explore. What have you got right here, right now? If there's any sense of tension or tightness you feel in any part of the body, just allow it to relax. You can think of the breath as a means of clearing out that tension. In other words, you breathe through it as you breathe in, and you allow it to go out with the breath as you breathe out. And as you let go of the tension here, you find that your sense of the body here in the present moment, your sense of awareness in the present moment, begins to open up. That's the softness, the malleability that we talk about in the state of concentration. The strength is that you don't allow yourself to get waylaid. Other thoughts are going to come in. When they come in, think of them just going right through you. Think of your body, think of your awareness as a big screen. Lots of little holes. It's porous. So when a sound comes in, when a thought comes in, whatever comes in, just let it go right through. You don't have to catch it. Just like a screen doesn't catch the wind. This way you can combine that sense of being tender, softened up, more sensitive, more malleable, 
with the, with the strength. The strength lies in the, the wires in the screen. The softness is in the, the holes in the screen that allow things to go through the porous nature of your awareness. But you're not catching on to other things. When the breath comes in, when the breath goes out, it can come in and go out anywhere in the body at all. And then you can explore how it feels, what way of breathing feels best right now. Look into it. It's long breathing, short breathing, fast breathing, slow breathing. Hot, cool, and warm breathing, kind of like the porridge in Goldilocks. You have all kinds of choices, but what you want is the one that's just right. You're not trying to program yourself or force yourself into a particular technique. The, the recommendations in the technique are there to give you guides in your exploration, give you a sense of direction in what you're doing. But the things that you're going to see depend on your own powers of observation. As you adjust, with the, adjust the breath, as you adjust your focus, That act of adjusting is the beginning of discernment. You begin to see connections, cause and effect. You breathe in a certain way, you choose to breathe in a certain way, and then there are certain sensations that result, either pleasurable or, or painful. That's the law of karma right there. Seeing how things arise, seeing how they pass away, seeing the connection between different things that arise and pass away. And the Buddha talks about the insight that leads to the first stage of awakening. It's seeing that all that is subject to origination is subject to cessation. That's an insight both into change and also an insight into causal connections. That word origination means that something has something that Things arise together with causes. And simply the fact that that insight just goes deeper and deeper and more and more all-encompassing as you get further and further into the meditation. But it starts with precisely this act of adjusting. Changing this a little here, changing that a little bit there, and seeing what happens as a result. And trying to be as observant as possible, as sensitive as possible. This is why you're told not to force the breath or to hold the breath, but allow it to come in and out and then monitor it to see what feels best. Learn to listen to things as they are. This was the nature of the Buddha, was to see things as they are. He didn't come into his meditation trying to force things in line with a lot of preconceived notions. He was more an explorer. Trying different approaches, seeing what results came about. He found what worked best for him, and he recommended it for us to follow. But in terms of the, in terms of the basic principles, they're all set out, but the details are things that we have to observe for ourselves. We've got our laboratory right here, the body sitting here breathing in and out right now. In other words, we're sitting here following his method, not just trying to program ourselves and to fit into what we've heard the Buddhist teachings were, but we follow the method that he proposed for learning the truths that lie within us. So it has to be a matter of your developing your own sensitivity, your own powers of awareness, and seeing precisely what it really is there. I've been looking through a field guide on nature observation. The author, when he was a child, was trained by an old Indian. There was one day where he asked the old Indian, why is it that you're not afraid of heat and cold? And the Indian looked at the kid for a while and finally said, it's because they're real. And this is our job as meditators, is to learn how not to be afraid of things that are real. Because ultimately we, we discover that things that are actually real pose no danger to the mind. 
The real dangers in the mind are our delusions, the things we make up, the things we use to cover up reality, the stories that we impose on things, the preconceived notions we impose on things. And when we're trying to live in those, then reality is threatening. Because it's always exposing the cracks in our ideas, the cracks in our ignorance, the cracks in our desires. We find that threatening. But if we learn to become real people ourselves, then reality poses no dangers. So this is what the meditation is for, is teaching yourself how to be real. To get in touch with what's really going on. To look at your sense of who you are and take it apart in terms of what it really is. To look at the things that you find threatening life. We'll see what they really are as well. When you when you really look, you see the truth. If you're true and you're looking, the truth appears. This is an important principle in the practice. This is why the Dharma is so precious. Only people who are true can see the truth. It's a quality of the mind that's not doesn't depend on figuring things out or being clever. It means being having an in integrity in your actions and integrity in your powers of observation. Accepting the truth as it is. Also accepting the fact that you play a role in shaping that truth, so you have to be responsible. You have to be sensitive to what you're doing and the results you get, and sensitive in learning how to be more and more skillful. So acceptance here. Many people think that acceptance means simply celebrating what's there already and saying you're good enough, that you don't have to make any changes. That's not the case at all. Acceptance means accepting the fact that you're responsible for a lot of your experience right now. You can't blame anybody else. And ultimately that's a good thing. If other people were shaping your experience, what would you do? You'd have to go around and please them all the time. But it's the fact that you're shaping your pleasures and pains here in the present moment. And some of the input that you've got to deal with, that comes from your past actions. But a lot of what you're experience right now comes from the way you shape things right here and right now. So learn to be open and honest with yourself about the role that you're playing here. And you find this this is the direction where the meditation goes. It goes into greater and greater sensitivity into precisely this, what you're doing right now. And the fact that if you were really observant, you'd be much more sensitive in shaping your experience and there'd be less and less suffering. In fact, you can ultimately get to the point where there is no suffering put into your experience at all. That's how far the skill can go. It means being true in your observation. Both admitting what you're doing to yourself and also admitting the results that come. And using your ingenuity to figure out how to do things better. So this is where that combination of sensitivity or softness or tenderness on the one hand and the strength come together. The sensitivity in lies in allowing yourself to see really refined things. The strength comes in admitting the truth for what it is. It's in this area where the ignorance that causes suffering lies. It's in our inability to be true to ourselves. But as the old man said, if you learn how to become a real person, then reality doesn't hold any dangers, doesn't hold any fears. As long as you're living in worlds that are false and made up, that's when reality holds, poses a threat. But when you strip away all that unreality in your mind, you find what's left is that there's nothing to fear. There are no dangers. It's just reality meeting with reality.
So the clearer you are about what you're doing right here, right now. The closer you get to that position where there is nothing to threaten you. There are no dangers in life. There is no suffering. So this simple exercise of watching your breath can go very deep, if you would allow it to. What you're doing right now is very important. Actually, this principle applies to what you're doing at any time, any right now. Because what you're doing right now is always shaping right now as well as the future. This is one of the basic messages of the Buddhist teachings. The world has many messages that try to pull us away from that. You watch TV and they tell you that what's really important in your life is what someone else is doing. Maybe sometime in the past or what they're planning to do in the future, but it's not what's happening right now. Not what you're doing right now. But when you think about it, what else shapes your life as consistently as your actions? When you're asked to believe in karma, this is what you're asked to believe that what you're doing is important. In fact, everything you experience in this space-time continuum where we live in is shaped by what you do. Even when you choose to either listen to this, or look at that, or smell this, or taste that, or touch that, or think this, or think that. It's a choice you make in the present moment. How you process things in the present moment is always an element of choice. There's so many, so much sensory input coming in all the time. You've got all these nerve endings throughout the body, and they're all sending messages up. And there are points in the nervous system that are kind of like telephone exchanges. They decide which message to send on and which one not to pay attention to, which one to cut off. Some of that's involuntary, but there's a lot more of that that's actually an element of choice, then you really realize, more than you realize. And so what we're doing as we're meditating is learning to see those choices as they're made, not just let everything go on automatic pilot. This is why the qualities we develop as we meditate are so important, qualities like mindfulness and alertness. Because if you're not mindful, you keep forgetting that your actions are important. And if you're not alert, you're not paying really, really paying attention to the choices that are being made. All too often, we're like a, a busy boss who just has too much work, and so his underlings come in and say, boss, this has to be decided on, boss, that has to be decided on. You say, well, just go ahead and decide whatever you think. Or just sort of a flippant, well, do this, do that. And admittedly, a lot of the decisions we're making in the present moment don't require all that much attention, but there's a lot that does. A lot where you have to be circumspect, particularly about what you let the mind focus on. This is very important, because you can focus on all kinds of wrong things. Even though they may be true, they're the wrong things for your life, in terms of how they will shape your life. Some topics come running into the mind, and they just keep Running through the mind so many times, it's like a truck running through mud. It creates big ruts. And then it gets more and more difficult to get out of the ruts. To the point where we think, well, we don't have any choice. Everything has to go through those ruts. But that's not the case. If, with enough effort, with enough mindfulness and alertness, we can make changes in the mind. We can open up new channels, direct the mind in ways that are actually helpful for it rather than harmful. This is what the principle of karma teaches us. A lot of people say they have problems with karma, but that's because they think in the larger cosmological questions, well, is there really rebirth or is there not rebirth? But what you're asked to believe is that what you're doing right now is important. And the results of your actions as they come back to you are shaped by your intentions which is something that's under your control. This is a good thing to believe.
if you don't believe this, so much of your life just gets thrown away. Opportunities get thrown away. And you end up making choices without being clear about what you're doing, about what their results are going to be. Then your life becomes a mess. So what we do as we develop conviction in the principle of karma is that we take responsibility for our actions. And we look carefully at what we're doing and what the results are. One of the very first lessons the Buddha gave to his son, after his son was ordained as a young novice, was to reflect on his actions. He said, use your actions like a mirror. And the mirror is for reflecting on yourself, while your actions are reflecting on yourself too. You get to see your mind through your actions. What you're doing, what you're saying, what you're thinking about. And you have to realize you have choices. If your mind is chattering away, we have the choice to listen or not. You have the, cha the choice to participate in the conversation or to steer it in a better direction. And then after you've made your choice, you, you have the chance to look at the results. And were they kind of things that you like? Well, if they're not, then you can change. Of course, you'll find there's a lot in the mind that resists that change. But you want to ask yourself, do you want to side with that resistance, or do you want to side with the conviction that you can make a difference? The choice, again, is yours. So even though what we're doing right here may seem very simple, it is very important. Just keep bringing the mind back to the breath. If you can't stay with the breath, well, look at what thoughts are pulling you away. When the Buddha talks about the three characteristics, as I mentioned the other night there, the terms in which he discusses discernment. And all the other night I emphasized the role that discernment plays after you've developed concentration. It can also be preparation for concentration on a certain level, at least enough to clear away a lot of the distractions that pull you out of concentration. Think, what are the topics you're thinking about? Which direction does your mind tend to flow? And look at it to see that whatever it is you're thinking about is something that's very unstable, impermanent, inconstant. and that it's stressful, and that it's not really you or yours. A lot of the narratives that tend to pull us in over and over again are the ones of our own injured innocence. Things where we did nothing at all wrong, and yet somebody mistreated us. Those seem to be the hardest things to let go of, because many times our sense of who we are is built up around these things. But if you learn to look at it and see that it's stressful, it's painful, to keep focusing on those things. And look at the advantage of thinking about those things. Exactly what gratification do you get out of it? And then you compare the gratification with the stress that's caused. And you see that it's not worth it. And even though this line of thinking may not be enough to uproot those thoughts, at least it's enough to help put them aside for the time being. This is where the three characteristics act as a preparation for concentration practice. Then, then once you get the mind to settle down, then they help develop your concentration. As you get with the breath and start getting absorbed, you look at where the breath is still uncomfortable, where it can be worked with. And also you begin to see what activities in the mind are burdensome. In the beginning, it's simply the things that would distract you from the concentration. But as the mind gets settled down, the breath gets more and more comfortable, you finally get to the point where you don't have to keep on evaluating the breath. The breath is good. feels good coming in, feels good going out. You're pretty well established in it. And the act of evaluating the breath then becomes a burden. You see that that's inconstant, stressful, relatively stressful. And you don't have to hold on to it. You let it go. This allows the mind to get firmly planted in its object, firmly planted in the breath. 
the breath may come in and go out, but the mind doesn't go in and go out. It stays boring into the present moment, like a drill boring down into something that just keeps going and going and going. And so on through the different stages of concentration. You get to a point where you see that a particular factor of that concentration itself is burdensome, unnecessary. Let it go. So the three characteristics translate into ways of developing concentration. Once you get fixed penetration, the mind is totally planted in the object very solidly. There's a big sense of oneness throughout the body and mind. You sit with that for a long period of time, but then you begin to see that even there, there are subtle things that are inconstant, stressful, and not self. And this is where you begin to develop the discernment that's based on concentration, that goes more deeply into the really subtle things in the mind that we tend to identify with, the way we perceive things. Subtle thought constructs we have about things, subtle, subtle feelings that we tend to identify with. You see how even those are constructed. And how if you identify with them, it's burdensome to the mind. Ultimately, you even get to the point where you see that your intentions are burdensome to the mind. And when things come together just right, you can drop that intention even without intending to. That's when things open up to another dimension entirely. This is how the Buddha says that the ultimate kind of action is the action that leads to the end of action. It takes the mind to an area where there is no action. He called it non-fashioning. And John Mun used the word actionlessness. That's the ultimate skill in what we can do, is to bring the mind to the point where it doesn't need to be skillful anymore. It goes beyond skillfulness, beyond action entirely. But to get there, you have to have a strong sense of the importance of what you're doing right now. It means letting go of what other people did in the past, letting go of what other people are doing to you right now, focusing on what you're doing right now, and see that importance, see its importance. Even though it may seem simple right now, or simple-minded right now, just keep with the breath, keep with the breath. It's an important habit you want to develop, as it makes you more and more sensitive to the present moment, makes you more sensitive to what you're doing in the present moment. And when that sensitivity is fully developed, it can take you all the way to the end of suffering. So what you're doing right now is very important. Don't tell yourself that you have a whole hour to sit here. Just tell yourself you've got this breath. This breath coming in, this breath going out. That's all there is. It's this breath. As for the breaths for the rest of the hour, Don't even think about them right now. Pay attention to them when they come, when they go, you're done with them. There's only this breath. Your meditation needs that kind of focus if you're going to see anything clearly. And this attitude also helps cut through a lot of the, the garbage at the beginning of the meditation. We may have experienced in the past how long it takes for the mind to settle down. But you should have a sense of where that mind, where the mind goes when it does settle down. Why can't you go there right now? Once you're there with the breath, then try to maintain that balance. Again, it's just this breath, this breath. And see what you can do with this breath. How deep can it go? How good can it feel? 
how much of your attention can you give to it. You find that the mind is kind of like a command post, where you're receiving information from all different sorts of things. And it has this tendency to reserve some of its attention for other things, aside from what you're trying to focus on right now. And what you want to do as you're meditating is to bring all your attention to the breath. So if you find any part of the mind or the body that's not connected with the breath, well, get it connected. Add it on. Let it build up as much as you can with each breath. The more fully you can be in the present moment, the better. One moment of full intention is better than a whole hour of just drifting around. And of course, a whole hour of full intention is better than just one moment. But you can't do a whole hour all at once. You can do just do the one moment. So give yourself fully to this moment. Don't hold anything back. This quality in the text is called citta. It's one of the bases for success. Giving the breath your full attention. Not saving part of your attention for the next breath, just everything for this breath. After all, as the Buddha says, how do you know how much longer you're going to live? There's that sutta where the he asks the monks, how often do you remind yourself of death every day? And one monk says, well, I remind myself, if I only have one more day to live, I can do an awful lot in terms of the practice. Someone else says, if I had half a day left to live, I could do a lot in terms of the practice. And it goes down and down and down. To finally you get to one monk who says, I keep telling myself, if I have one more breath to live, I can do a lot for the practice. And the Buddha says, okay, that's the person who's uncomplacent. Everyone else, he said, counts as heedless, complacent. What this means is that in one breath you've got everything you need to focus on, everything you need to do a lot in terms of the practice. If we let the practice get automatic without giving it our full attention, this breath comes and that breath goes, and we didn't get much out of any of them. Thinking somehow that we can make up in terms of many breaths for the fact that we didn't really pay attention to any one particular breath very much. It's like presenting an argument. Some people think that if they can present 50 weak arguments, that counts up to one good argument. Or 50 weak reasons for something that counts up to one good reason, but it doesn't. What you need is just one really good reason. One really good argument and you win the day. And it's the same with the meditation. One really good breath, one really intent intently experienced breath, fully experienced breath, can show you a lot more than an hour or two of superficially viewed breaths, breaths where you're just skimming across the surface, hoping to get to the end of the hour. Try to immerse yourself. The word gayakatasati, mindfulness immersed in the body. That word kata there means, means immersed like someone sitting immersed in darkness. I've forgotten what the word for darkness is, but it's a, it ends with a kata in the same way. Try to s totally surround yourself with a breath. Be aware of the breath on all sides. And that way you don't have room to hold anything back. And things begin to open up in the body, things begin to open up in the mind. Sometimes you can begin to detect that there's even a physical sense of somehow you're pulling yourself back from your body. Or you've been doing that. Pulling yourself back from being totally immersed in the present moment. Saving part of yourself for something else. Well, as you're meditating, you let go of that sense and let yourself jump right into the present moment. same way you jump into a big pool of water. 
because everything you need to know for the purpose of awakening is right here. And if you hold back, it means you're missing some of the elements. So as far as you're concerned, right here, right now, this is all there is, the right here, the right now, this breath, this breath. If you see any thoughts arising in the mind about how much longer we're going to be sitting here, or how much longer, how, how long we have been sitting here, just let them blow away. Think of the breath going right through them, not giving them any space to land. And you find that as you stay fully immersed in the breath like this, a lot of the other good qualities that you want to develop in the practice come along without you having to think about them. You don't have to worry about directed thought, you don't have to worry about evaluation, you don't have to worry about all those wings to awakening. As you fully give yourself to the breath, fully give yourself to the present moment, they all come. And Paul Poot tells at the time when he was studying with Ajahn Sao. Ajahn Sao's meditation instructions were simplicity itself. Just focus on the meditation word. He said, that's all you have to know. Roland Paul being a kind of person who liked to read a lot, he would read Ajahn Singh's meditation guide and talks about establishing mindfulness and all kinds of other things that you have to do in order to get into your meditation. So he asked Ajahn Sao about this. And Ajahn Sao said, look, when you focus on the Bhutto, that all that happens in and of itself without you having to decide where mindfulness is and where you're going to establish it. When you allow yourself to stay fully with the Bhutto, then all those other good qualities come along as well. It's the same with being with a breath. Just fully give yourself with a breath. If you want to say the meditation word along with it, think of every little cell on your body saying Bhutto, Bhutto, until the mind is really with the breath. Then you can let go of the meditation word and be fully immersed in the breath. And then you don't have to get out. You don't have to pull out. You don't have to pull back. Just stay right here. And bit by bit, you find yourself adjusting to staying right here. And that's the directed thought, and that's the evaluation. But it's simply a matter of being right here, being fully aware right here. And if the fullness of your awareness develops over time, that's fine. You don't have to pace yourself. Just give yourself fully right now. And if you give yourself fully right now, then if it grows fuller in the sometime later down down the road here in the hour, fine. If not, you don't have to save yourself for the last lap. It's not like being a runner who has to pace himself. This is one of those cases where you give yourself fully to the breath right now. You don't have to worry about what you're going to have left at the end of the hour. The, give, the full giving right here is going to give you the strength you're going to need to see, your, see yourself through the hour. So as you're meditating here, there's just this one thing, this breath. That's all you need to know. One of the Thai idioms for meditating is making an effort. And the effort is precisely in being very careful about your intentions. Because actually an effort goes into all of our experience in the present moment. Excuse me. We're always shaping our experience by our intentions. There's quite a lot of effort right there to begin with. And what we're doing in the effort of the meditation is to be more careful about our intentions, more careful about how we're shaping things. One of the most radical discoveries in meditation is exactly how much you are already doing. We tend to have an attitude that we're we're like people watching TV, totally passive. Everything is already taken care of. It's simply our duty to watch. The present moment then is something that's already ready-made, and is, we're simply consumers, watchers, spectators. But that's not the case. We're shaping things from the very beginning. Both through our past actions and our present actions, what we're doing right now.
we take the materials coming in from the past and we shape them into the present. So we already are making an effort. We already are doing something. And we want to do that as skillfully as possible. Because the way we shape the present moment affects not only the present moment, but it has ramifications that go on into the future. So you want to be very mindful about where you're being skillful and where you're not. When the Buddha gave his first instructions to his son, who at the time was only seven years old, it came down to the issue of being very careful about your intentions, looking at your intentions before you act, looking at the results of your actions while you're doing it. If you notice anything unskillful, stop. If not, continue. And then look at the results of your actions after they're done. And if you've caused harm in ways that you hadn't expected, talk it over with other people who are practicing, and then resolve not to repeat that mistake. This willingness to admit our own mistakes and to change our ways. This is a very important part of the practice. If we can't change our ways, we, there's no purpose in practicing at all. This is why the Buddha said that there's one requirement for someone to practice the Dharma with him is someone who is honest and open. In other words, you admit your mistakes readily. Because it's only that way that you're going to learn, both from other people that you talk to about your mistakes and from just watching cause and effect in your own actions. We may think that this teaching is simply about external actions, but also refers to the, what we're doing in the mind. The way you're focusing on the breath right now has an impact on how you're experiencing the breath. Your concepts about the breath, your concepts about what it means to be focused, your intention in being with the breath. All these things shape the breath, shape your experience of the breath. And you want to get sensitive so you can notice when you made a mistake, so that you can correct it as quickly as possible. Because otherwise the effort we put into the present moment just becomes more and more and more of a burden if we're not careful. So what we're trying to do is lighten our burdens. That's why the meditation is called practice. You read books on practicing swimming, say, or practicing a musical instrument. And when they describe the process of what it means to practice these things in an effective way, it's always looking for how you're doing things in an inefficient way, expending more energy than you really have to, getting less results than you should. So we learn to let go of as much misunderstanding, as much inefficiency, as much lack of mindfulness as you can. That's why we say we practice. Many times our problem is that we tend to carry things around from the past. Psychologists say that the sense of self is strongest about around things where we felt we've been wronged in the past. And we tend to hold on to those stories more tightly than perhaps anything else in our experience. It places a huge weight on us the more we carry this baggage around. The less good we can do in the present moment. We don't have the energy. In Pali they have the word upati, which can be translated as belongings, paraphernalia, the original images of nomadic tribes, all their stuff that they would carry around, that was their upati. Their tents, their belongings. And for a nomadic tribe, of course, you want to keep those things as light as possible. Take only what is really necessary. You see this principle reflected in the life of the monks. Monks are supposed to keep their possessions to a minimum. The ideal monk described in the canon is someone who carries only the, the amount of number of robes, his begging bowl, just what's necessary for a survival, and everything else he leaves behind. He's just like a bird that takes its wings as its only burden. In other words, the things that allow it to move, that's its burden. It, doesn't, it tries to 
keep everything else trimmed away. And it's a principle not only in terms of physical things, material things, but also in terms of your mind. Look at all the baggage you carry around. Try to eliminate as much as possible stuff you've dragged in from the past. There are lessons to be learned from the past, but many times we carry a lot of unnecessary stuff around. So do your best to let go of that old baggage. So you can give more energy to the present moment, to shape the present moment. And through the present moment you shape the future in a way that's really skillful. Causes less and less suffering for yourself, less and less suffering for the people around you. Always mindful of the fact that the way you experience the present moment is a doing. There's an effort that goes into it. It's a skill that can be developed. It starts with the very basics of how we approach our experience, the way we breathe, the way we approach our breath, the way we approach everything. We're not here just to practice the, but the breath. We take the breath as a foundation, but we also are practicing other aspects of what's good in our lives. I was recently translating a talk by John Lee. He refers over and over again to people who come to the monastery, he says, to develop their goodness. To build their goodness. And that includes not only your goodness as you meditate, but your goodness in everything you do. If you're eager to develop your goodness, you find more and more opportunities to do it. If you're grudging, then it just you're just placing limitations on yourself. So the goodness is not just in the meditation. It's in everything. You take the meditation, you take the breath as your basis for the way you approach everything. Because it gives you the strength that's needed in order to do that goodness in other areas as well. But it's not just the meditation. Everything we do while we're here should be devoted to developing goodness in all areas, because we're training the whole mind. So that our effort into shaping the present, no matter what the present is, whether we're sitting here with our eyes closed or working around the monastery, doing chores, helping in various ways. It's all of a piece. Because the way you approach the meditation should connect with the way you approach other aspects of life. And the way you approach other aspects of life is going to have an impact on your meditation. So try to keep it all as seamless as possible. After all, it is the same mind. No matter what the situation, you want to develop the same qualities all throughout the day. So the effort you place into put into shaping your life here is consistently as skillful as possible. And it's in developing the skill that you gain a lot of insight, unexpected insights. Insights don't only come when you're sitting here with your eyes closed. They come in unexpected times of the day. So you want to be attentive to what you're doing. And the more you focus on being skillful in what you do, the more likely the insights are to come. The insights that lighten your load, lighten the load of the people around you. And ultimately you can get to that point where you can see what it's like not to have an intention in the present moment, when everything reaches a, a point of equilibrium and, other, and another dimension opens up. That's where this is all aimed. So think of your whole life, everything you do, as aiming in that direction. Then, as John Lee Fuyang said in his talk the other night, our life isn't divided up into times. The time to do this, the time to go into town, the time to work on this, the time to sit and meditate. If it's all chopped up like that, then it doesn't gain any momentum. But if it's timeless, the, the pursuit of skill in how you shape the present moment, then it all comes together. Focus on your breath. The breath is coming in, know it's coming in. When it goes out, know it's going out. 
and be as sensitive as possible to how it feels. Does it feel comfortable? Could it feel more comfortable? Experiment to see. You can try long breathing, short breathing, deep or shallow. Try to see what the breath can do for the body. This is one of the basic principles of the Buddha's teachings, is that the very simple things we have already can be put together in such a way that they can lead to true happiness. We don't have to go searching outside for other people, other things, for our happiness. All we need is right here. The problem is we're not paying much attention right here. We're looking at other things outside. Our attention gets distracted by things we see, see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think about. And yet the happiness those things offer is, is pretty shallow. They're like the lights in Las Vegas. They promise all kinds of happiness out there, this mirage in the desert. But that's just it. The happiness they offer is a mirage as well. Sometimes you can look at a whole life spent chasing these things, and you have nothing to show, aside from a lot of regrets. It was the Buddha's insight into this that made him go off into the wilderness, because he had all the things that everyone could offer in those days, in terms of material pleasures, sensual pleasures, pleasures of power, the potential for all kinds of promises of happiness, of course, the potential for all kinds of mischief as well. And he saw it just, just then, really. That these, hap these forms of happiness were not going to take him anywhere he really wanted to go, and it could tempt him to do all kinds of very unskillful things with his life. So he realized he had to get out into the forest, get out into the wilderness to see what on his own he could do, what potential for happiness was there right inside the mind, right in this to say this fathom-long body. What do the body and mind have to offer in the present moment? Well, you've got the breath coming in and out, and you've got very simple abilities of the mind, the ability to keep things in mind, the ability to be alert, to be aware. doesn't sound like much to begin with, but he said you put these things together, and they can take you to the ultimate happiness. If you really give them the space and the time and the persistence that they require. And he discovered that it really could take to that happiness, take you to that happiness. And that's why he spent the rest of his life teaching everybody else. And it's a difficult path, it's a challenging path, but it's a path that works. Otherwise it wouldn't have lasted all this time. Other religions come along and they pro promise a lot easier things. You believe in this being, or you believe in these teachings, and they say, oh, that's all you have to do, and that will take you to ultimate happiness after you die. Of course, after you die, you can't come back and complain that you didn't get what you were promised. And so it's easy to see why religions like that last, because they promise the easy way out. But here's a religion that promises the hard way, but it's, it's got results that you can find in this lifetime. That's why it's lasted. But it's a challenge. As the Buddha said, true happiness is possible. And you've got this human life. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? And with the possibility of true happiness there, you owe it to yourself to explore that possibility, to test it, to see if it really is true. So we start with these very basic ingredients. We've got the mind here in the present moment, and sometimes the problem is that it's not in the present moment. The body's always here, and it's always present. The mind's always slipping off to other things. Or if it's not slipping off to the past or the future, it's getting all entangled in very unskillful ways about what's going on in the present moment. So you've got to learn how to untangle that. This is where we're given the breath as our, as our foundation. It's what you hold on to. As you stay with the breath, it helps get you out of the constant back and forth of all the different conversations going on in the mind. Monologues and dialogues and committee discussions. Pull out of those for a while and just stay with the breath. 
give yourself a new perspective. It's like the, the Buddha going out of the palace and into the, into the wilderness, getting away from all those issues in the palace and lying low. So here you are with a breath, you're kind of lying low. And as for the issues in the palace, in other words, all the stuff that's going on in terms of your thoughts about this, your thoughts about that, your opinions, you don't have to focus on them. Just let them pass, pass, pass. You find that a lot of the thoughts going in your mind don't have to be chased out. If you just don't pay attention to them, they're there, you know they're there, but you don't have to focus on them. A lot of them will just go, because so much of what goes on in the mind just snaps, it's firing, it's spinning the wheels. Some thoughts will grab hold of the mind, and those are the ones you're going to have to grapple with. But in order to grapple with them, you need a good solid foundation. As John Mann used to say, you need a good stronghold. Make the breath your stronghold your body here in the present moment. You know this sensation of breath. Just stay with that sensation. Settle into it. Let your awareness melt into the breath, which you can do by getting more and more sensitive to how the breathing feels. That forms your foundation. And then you use your other weapons to deal with the thoughts that really grab hold of the mind. Like the chant we just had now on the parts of the body. The very first five of those, that's those are the weapons that are given to a new ordinate when you ordain. Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, skin, teeth. These are the parts of the body you see when you look at it from the outside. These are your weapons for dealing with lust. Lust comes up. Remember, it's the mind that goes out lusting. It's not the body that provokes the lust so much as it's the mind's desire to lust after something. And then it goes looking, and it will grab hold of whatever it can find. Because when you actually look at the things that the mind grabs hold of, there's not that much there that you would really want to get involved with. Take the skin and the nails and the teeth and the hair, take them apart, see what you've got. There's nothing there. In fact, if you came into this room and found these things piled in the room, you would turn around and go away. And yet, somehow in certain configurations and in certain lights and from certain angles, you can make them look attractive. That's lust doing that in the mind. And so what you're doing is opening up your eyes so they see more of what's actually going on. When you see the whole picture, you realize there's nothing that it's worth lusting for. Now again, working with this, you've you take the breath as your foundation, as your stronghold. Because otherwise you feel like you're depriving yourself of something. But if you have that sense of well-being that comes with the breath that you're really sensitive to, you compare the pleasure that comes from the lust and the pleasure that comes from breathing, and realize the pleasure that comes from the breathing is a lot more satisfactory. It's more solid, it's more lasting. Because it doesn't require you to blind yourself to things. It actually comes from opening your eyes up. Your other weapons for dealing with anger. A lot of times you hear that goodwill is the antidote to anger. Actually, goodwill together with all the other Brahma-viharas, sublime attitudes. You need all of them to deal with anger, because sometimes it's really hard to stir up goodwill. But when you think about equanimity, which is basically a contemplation of the fact of karma, that what those other people have done, they're going to have to reap the results of their karma. You don't have to be the, the avenging angel that's going to come in and make it come faster, because otherwise then it becomes your karma. This doesn't mean you don't do anything at all, but you just realize that what you're going to do in response to a difficult situation is going to have long-term consequences. And so you want to think carefully about what you're going to do, what you're going to say, what you're going to think in order to correct the situation, if you can. See, there's just a few of the weapons that come in. Others are contemplation of death. That's a good weapon to use against complacency, laziness. You think, well, I could wait for another day, wait for another year, wait for another lifetime to do all the work. But if you let go of this opportunity, you never know when it's going to come again. 
You see people coming into the monastery, and they stay for a while, and then they disappear, and you have no idea where they're going. It's like that scene in the Divine Comedy where Dante talks to these people who appear in a whirlwind. Their faces appear for a moment, and then they're gone. You don't know how long that whirlwind is going to take to whirl them back around again. So when you have the opportunity, when you can surface a little bit and your nose is above water, take the advantage to breathe. Take the opportunity to train your mind while you have the opportunity. Because it's the trained mind that's going to make all the difference. And if you just leave things up to trust and hope and faith that things will work out in the end, there's no guarantee. The only guarantee you have is your trained mind. And if your mind isn't trained now, we've well, got to train it now. Death could happen at any time. So these are the weapons that you use to deal with the thoughts that come into your mind that are going to pull you away. Actually, you have a lot more. In fact, the Buddha has a whole slew of weapons. But it all comes based on this foundation you're building here with a breath. Everything else comes out of this. As John Fuang used to say, this is the foundation for our skill right here, just dealing with the breath. Everything else comes out of this, so this has to be your primary focus. As for those other weapons, it's like when you're in a battle. Say you have a, a gun and you have a knife, and you have a spear. Well, you use those weapons as, as necessary, but you never want to give up your, your strong position. Your stronghold here. And you never want to give up your determination that you're going to win the battle. One of John Munn's last Dharma talks was, on right, was right on this point. He says, the one thing you never want to abandon, I mean, there's all these other things you have to let go of in the practice, but one thing you hold on to is your determination not to come back not to have to come back and do this all over again. I guess it's the Dharma promises. When you, when you win this battle, there's nothing else you have to fight for. Nothing else you have to struggle for. The, the job is done. There's no other job in the world that ever gets done. Everything else just, you work and work and work, and finally you just can't work any longer because you don't have the strength, or else people don't let you do the work. But the work just does, the work of the world never gets done. It's a constant effort. People tend to forget this, how much effort goes into just being alive. This is one of the Buddha's major insights, is to seeing how, how much we have to keep fabricating just to be here, just to have a present moment. And it's something we do with compulsion. We don't know what we don't know how not to do it. In fact, that's what we're learning: is how not to be constantly fabricating the present. That's what it ultimately comes down to. The problem is we don't realize how how much we're fabricating our entire experience of space and time in the present moment is a fabrication, and a lot of effort goes into it, and it's an effort that never gets done unless you decide to take this path, the path that puts an end to it all. And then that I, we're scared of that kind of end, but we actually get there, you realize it's, it is the ultimate happiness. This is the only job that the world has to offer that can come to completion. And the completion is total happiness, ultimate happiness, ultimate well-being. So take this opportunity while you have it. And it starts with these simple things, being with a breath, being alert, being mindful. And it builds on that. This is one of the reasons why the path is so reliable. It starts right where you are and stays right where you are. It's a developing of right where you are. You don't have to go believing anything else. All I have to believe is that you've got the potential right here.
some of these very simple things that people tend to overlook, but when you develop them, they take you places you could never imagine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.